Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, some white stuff on the ground that may be uh, not that familiar, uh, but we uh, sure can use the moisture, so we praise God for that. But uh, we are continuing looking at the book of Luke, and our series is entitled Against the Flow as we see Jesus doing things that were very countercultural. And I trust that as we continue looking, through this amazing gospel that we will be encouraged and challenged in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, may we recognize that you are Almighty God. And as Almighty God, you love us more than we can imagine. Your grace is amazing. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged this morning. Lord, for those who are facing difficult times, adversity in their lives, I pray that you would just help them to see your hand of comfort. For each one of us, Lord, may we be encouraged in our relationship with you, and as we look at your word, may we be challenged in how we need to live differently. And We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Not a hometown hero. We're in Luke chapter 4, and I had a privilege, it's been quite a few years ago now, but to go back to my uh, high school alma mater from a little different perspective. We have a picture up here, what it, what it looks like, yeah, and so uh, well, I went to Belgrade High School in the late 70s, early 80s, and, and probably, I want to say 2010 or so. Uh, I, some of you know I used to ref basketball, and uh, so our Helena Poole got a call that Bozeman was overwhelmed with games and underwhelmed that weekend with referees, and so they asked if a few of us would go down to the Bozeman area and ref. And I jumped at that opportunity, and, and so I went down there. They have what's called the Special Events Center in Belgrade, and I think it hosts about 5,400 fans, a little larger gymnasium than when I played there. But so I went down there, and I was excited, and, and we ended up refing a JV game, and it was a complete blowout. And, uh, but, uh, so anyway, there was still one coach that believed the referees were the reason they lost by 30 points. But uh, anyway, so I remember going out there onto that court, and I was sort of little goosebumps, you know, and, and, I, and I go out there, and I'm waiting for the whispers in the 15 to 30 people that were there watching that JV game whispering, is that John Fennelson? But I didn't hear any of the whispers. I, I went into uh, where the, the referee's locker room, and there were no plaques on the wall, anything, mentioning my name. I went out into the, the area where they had some trophies, and nothing about me. There wasn't a statue in front of the building that, that, uh, of me uh, being our leading scorer in warm-ups, anything like that. And uh, it, it was fun. I, I always enjoyed refing, but uh, you know, I don't even think anybody recognized me. And we sort of 
you know, dream that we, we want that, where people say, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so. Well, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes back or teaches in his hometown of Nazareth. He'd been teaching throughout the region of Galilee, and he would go on into the synagogues, and he would teach there in the synagogues. And, and as we pick up the story in Luke chapter 4, verses, verse 16 and following, we see that, that Jesus is in Nazareth. He's in Nazareth there for the synagogue. And if we look at a map here, we see uh, Nazareth is a pretty... If you're familiar with Jerusalem, is down here. You're familiar with Israel. Up in the northern part of Israel, the region of Galilee, is the town of Nazareth. And that's where Jesus grew up. Local hero comes home. I'm sure on their synagogue bulletin, they probably... Actually, that probably is not the case. But uh, anyway, so he was there in Nazareth. And let's pick up the story of what's taking place in the life of Jesus and in the ministry of Jesus here in Luke chapter 4. We see the story beginning in verse 16. It says, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to reco and recovery of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord." So Jesus made it his practice to take part in the activity of the synagogue. And as we see here in, here in Luke chapter 4, also in Matthew chapter 4, we see that he began his ministry in Galilee. Galilee included about 240 towns. And in order to have a Jewish synagogue, there needed to be 10 Jewish men in that town. So almost all of those towns had a synagogue. Many of the towns had multiple synagogues. So there were a lot of synagogues for Jesus to visit. Jesus had been teaching, had been performing miracles in the region. We see in the first chapters of John a little picture of that. And he came to his hometown of Nazareth, and as it says there in verse 16, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. Now the synagogue service included several things. Part of what it included was a reading from the law, or readings from the law and the prophets, different readings, and also teaching on what was read. They would do it a little differently. I thought we might try this here today, but, but they would... They would stand to read, and then they would sit to teach. So I thought what we could do is, is you would also, if I'm going to start teaching here, I'll go ahead and sit down. You can all stand, and uh, we'll, we'll try it that way. And probably after about three or four minutes, you'll say, ah, that's enough of that. I'm going to go see if there's some coffee available. So I decided maybe we won't do that. 
But so Jesus was given one of the scrolls, the scroll of Isaiah. So this was a reading from the prophets. And he went to Isaiah 61. And everyone in that room knew this was a prophecy of the Messiah. And as we get into his teaching here in just a moment, that's a very important part of the story. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. We'll go ahead and read those. Now, at that time, they did not have chapter and verse. That came out about the 13th century. So uh, he just read from Isaiah, getting near the end of the book of Isaiah. And uh, so, but we have it recorded as chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. A messianic prophecy. The Messiah that the Jews were looking for. And this was one of many Old Testament scriptures that pointed to that Messiah. Now, there's an important part to recognize as Jesus read from Isaiah here in Luke chapter 4 that he stopped mid sentence, he stopped at a comma. And what, took, what was written right after the, that comma was the day of the vengeance of our God. So this was a prophecy that the Old Testament Jews look forward to, but really it was a prophecy that took place in two parts. And Jesus intentionally stopped right in the middle of the prophecy. You see, the prophecy talked about the good tidings, the coming to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, opening prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's why Jesus was there in his first coming. But then we have the comma. And that next phrase, talking about the day of the vengeance of the Lord, is his second coming when he comes again to establish his kingdom on earth and to judge the world. And so as they would look at it as one prophecy, it really had two very distinct parts. And we can look at it this way. Today, in 2024, we're living in the comma. Because Jesus came, and he's coming again. But he's coming again to judge that last part as we read it in verse 2 of Isaiah 61. And so Jesus was saying, listen. All these things why the Messiah would come to bring healing and freedom was why he came to this earth the first time. 
But I want us to notice here in this next little bit the attitude of the listeners and the roller coaster of their response. I say roller coaster, it wasn't really up and down. It started at the top and went down. So let's look at, at the beginning where we see in, in verses 20 through 22, we could call it, he is such a nice young man. You know, you could picture some of, some of the people there that had lived in Nazareth their whole life, and it's like local boy shares story. It, it is so neat. Notice what it says in verses 20 through 22. It says, then he closed the book, so Jesus finished reading. He had stood to read. Now he closes the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. So that means, okay, it's teaching time. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. I don't, maybe that's a little different than today. You may be looking at different things up on the ceiling instead of me. But anyway, they all were focused on him. They had heard a lot about him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Big point there. What was he saying? This messianic prophecy, you're seeing it. I'm here. Notice verse 21. Or verse 22, excuse me. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Now, I'm sure you're probably going home with the same thing too. That you were marveled at the gracious words that proceed out of my mouth. But we'll, we'll see about that too. But, so Jesus was there and they were all like, oh yeah, Joe and Mary's boy. Things seemed to be going well. Now, Nazareth was a very small town. Not too many things that it was famous for. So you can imagine the pride of many of those people because somebody from their town was making the news. And Jesus, his ministry had just begun, but he was beginning to make some pretty impressive news. You ever drive down the interstate in some areas and they have, you know, where it's a turn off to a town and it says birthplace of so-and-so, such a, you know, a famous person? <laughs> Can you imagine all roads, the interstate going through Nazareth? And yeah, hey, now, it wasn't the birthplace, because remember, he had to go down to Bethlehem where he was actually born, but hometown of Jesus, rabbi. Now, Nazareth probably had at that time two to 400 people, maybe a little four, over 400 people. They, they estimate that the, that the whole area on which the, the town there sat and it's probably spread out a little bit even to make this area, was, was 60 acres or less. I mean, you're talking about, they were on a road, yeah, it was a road to nowhere. And they were all there in the synagogue listening to Jesus. Hometown boy, in fact, I'm sure somebody probably elbowed their neighbor and said, yeah, 
our coffee table. He and his dad, Joe, made that. And I'm sure there were lots of things, and they could picture Jesus as a little boy running around the streets. So it seems like it's hometown hero made good. But Nazareth didn't have much to cheer for. In fact, in John chapter 1, it's, it's fascinating. Jesus there in John chapter 1 is sharing, and a guy named Philip, who becomes one of his followers, was listening. And we see in verses 45 and 46 it says, of John 1, it says, Philip found Nathanael, that was his brother, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, check out Nathaniel's response. In other words, uh, Philip is saying, hey, I think we found the Messiah. And he's from Nazareth. And check out what Nathaniel says. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> that little podunk town? But I love Philip's response. Philip said to him, come and see. We talk about what Jesus Christ has done. And we may have friends or co-workers or relatives who say, uh. and Philip had the right response to his brother Nathaniel that we can have. Well, look what he's done. And let me tell you what he's done in my life. But we see this seems to be going well. Read a prophetic scripture from Isaiah, and he made the, uh, what would become a very controversial statement. You're looking at it. You're looking at the fulfillment. But things seem to be going well. But when they said, is he not the son of Joseph? seems to be where things turn. And so if we go into the next part, we see in, beginning in verse 23, their attitude changes to what? Who does he think he is? You see, they were amazed at his teaching, but it did not affect their actions. And we could say it did not affect their attitude, but it really did affect their attitude, but not in the way it was, should have affected their attitude. It affected their attitude, and they began to get angry. Notice what it says in verses 23 through 27, because Jesus, being God, recognized, knew the attitude that they had, and he goes to scold them. And we see that in these verses, verses 23 and following. He said to them, that's Jesus, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Capernaum where he had been teaching, some miracles had been done. Verse 24, then he said, surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were, uh, heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath, foreign area in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
doesn't stop there. Verse 27, and many lepers were in the, in the land or in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed or was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, another foreigner. So we see Jesus recognizes the attitude or the change of attitude in the people. They were becoming angry. Why were they now angry? Well, I think several things that come out in this passage. One, you see, they wanted miracles like had taken place in other towns. Many had come to see the show. If you remember when Jesus was going to be crucified and he was before Pilate, and Pilate sent him to another leader, the region of Galilee, and all he wanted to see was a miracle. Hey, Jesus, come on. Let's have a show. It's like inviting the entertainment to the activity. Come on, put on a show for us. And a lot of people, that's all they were interested. They wanted to see a show. And that's why he said, all you're saying is, hey, do what you did in Capernaum. Also, some of them questioned Jesus' claim that he was the Son of God. They'd watched him grow up. He was the son of Joe and Mary. (laughs) The son of God stuff. Some of them ignored it. Some of them, as we will see throughout Jesus' ministry and life, became very angry about it, especially the religious leaders. You see, there was major contention between Jesus and the religious leaders about his identity. But we also see that that they wanted to be given preferential treatment. I'm sure as people from his hometown. But also the Jews in general. I mean, they were the Jews. They were God's chosen people. They had followed the law. They deserved special treatment. How dare Jesus challenge them? They had pride in their heritage. And Jesus gives two examples, prophets Elijah and Elisha, that flew in the face of the Jewish pride. Elijah went to a foreign widow when the drought occurred. There we read about in in 1 Kings in the Old Testament. There's a little bit of a background to that. You see, Israel was worshiping Baal, or some people pronounce it Baal. Interesting, Baal was the storm god. And what did God do? He took away the storms. No rainstorms in Israel, three and a half years. Goes directly against the supposed power of the god, small g, that they had chosen to worship rather than Jehovah. And so the drought had occurred, and with that, famine was taking place. Crops weren't growing. The people were desperate. 
And what did God do with Elijah? He sent him up to an area of Sidon, a town called Zarephath, to a Gentile widow who was having a miserable time of it also, but God miraculously provided for her as she provided for Elijah. But going right in the face of the struggles of Israel, but yet that widow demonstrated faith and trust in God when the people of Israel did not. And then Elisha, When someone received, had leprosy, they were ostracized. But, but leprosy had a very strong connotation, you see, because that outward infection, they believed, pointed to inward corruption in that person's life. What had they done? It was an outward manifestation of an inward corruption. And so there was, if you remember the story, this little Jewish girl that had been taken to Naaman's people. And Naaman was the general of the enemy's army. And this little Jewish girl said, hey, I know a God. And he's got a prophet named Elisha. And, and my God can help you. And his prophet can lead you into how my God can help you. And so if you remember the story, Naaman went and, and he went to visit Elisha. And Elisha just said, I'll go down. Naaman, pretty powerful guy. I mean, he was the general of the very powerful army. And Elisha didn't even take the time. He just sent his message. Yeah, just go dip seven times in that Ucky Jordan River. Well, Naaman at the beginning was very angry. How dare I mean, he should be honoring me. I'm an important person. But on his way home, his attendants were able to convince him, you know, if he would have asked you to give him a million dollars, you would have done it. All he's asking you is to dip seven times in this river. So Naaman did that, healed of his leprosy. And we always look at the story from Naaman's point of view. But can you imagine it from the point of view of the Jews this was the leader of their enemy's army and God was taking care of them or him excuse me but they questioned whether God was taking care of them but you see there's a whole point they missed out they turned their back on God and they chose to worship in a completely different direction. And leprosy was a reminder to them of the corruption in their lives as they chose to disobey and disavow God. And so, oh boy, they didn't like the stories that Jesus told here in that synagogue meeting. And here's one of the struggles that they had and that we have too. We want God on our terms. 
And that's exactly what the Israelites wanted. All right, God. Yeah. You can be part, but, but it's going to be our terms, our plan. And so we see that just as in the days of Elijah and Elisha, we see in the days of Jesus, the Jews had that same struggle. And that same struggle goes on in our world even today. All right, God. Yeah. You can, you can be involved in my life in these areas, and this is what I want you to do. But when the challenge to be committed comes up, yeah, I'm a little busy for that. Or when God chooses to do something different than we want. All right, God, no. I'm out of here. And so we see they struggled with that. They wanted preferential treatment. They wanted God on their terms. We also see that they didn't like being labeled poor or captive or blind or oppressed. As Jesus read about there in Isaiah 61. It's interesting, in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking about the bondage or imprisonment of sin. And in verse 33 of John 8, it says, They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Now, obviously they failed history class. (laughs) In fact, they failed current events. Because history class, they had been in bondage from the, from the Assyrians, from the Babylonians, and then the Greeks, and now the Romans. Current events, they were right now in bondage. But how dare someone say that they were poor and blind and captives, oppressed, You see, they responded very proudly and foolishly. And another struggle that we have is this. One of the greatest, or I believe the most difficult part of putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ is recognizing our need for Him. I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need God. And I'm pretty good, and God's going to look at me and say, (laughs) yeah, that John, he's done some pretty good things, obviously. Heaven would be a better place with him there. (laughs) No, we have to come to a point in our life when we say that we need him. And we are hopeless without him. And they struggled with that. Finally, they struggled with the idea of God giving grace to Gentiles. You see, they believed that Gentiles were God-forsaken people. And the Romans, especially, since they were the current world power, and all the other Gentiles deserved God's judgment. 
they, the Jews, deserved God's grace. But don't we do that same thing? Think about it, maybe, maybe we're having an, an argument with our husband or wife or a friend or there's an issue going on at work and we expect to be treated with grace if we happen to do something wrong they need to understand but oh when somebody does something wrong to us <laughs> oh boy don't make me angry you won't like me when I'm angry. And they struggled seeing God's grace to the Gentiles. But Jesus in this passage reminded them that God's grace was for the world. God loves the world. So, in ultimate Ultimately, they struggled with the sovereignty of God, which we can struggle with also. Times where we say life's not fair. Or why did God allow this to happen? And those people struggled with the same things that we can struggle with in our lives each and every day. And so it finally comes to verses 28 through 30 where they said, kill him. Hmm. Hometown hero, to let's string him up. Actually, they were going to throw him over the cliff. Notice what it says in verses 28 through 30. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill of which their city was built, and that, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. <laughs> we see God finally performed a miracle. I mean, they've been waiting for one all day, and now God did it, but it was a miracle to stop them from doing the foolish thing they were trying to do. And, and I don't know, we don't know exactly how it happened, but I can picture it. It's sort of like one of those comic book movies you, you picture where, where all the people are just trying, and then Jesus just sort of weaves his way through. But we see that their attitude changed when they didn't get things the way they wanted well, as we close, some lessons that we can learn as we've been weaving this story through these verses in Luke chapter 4. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, not just the Son of Joseph. And it's interesting, through these first chapters of Luke, and you'll see it throughout the Gospels, over and over and over again, Jesus said, this is who I am. And there was more and more and more tension in the story as, as his ministry went on. And it began with the religious leaders, but then the whole crowd. He's a liar or a lunatic. Josh uh, McDowell and C.S. Lewis actually said it too. But you have to believe he's either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. And 
they all fell on the liar lunatic side of the spectrum. And it's interesting, in the, first ver- in the first chapters of Luke, we see it over and over again. Here are just a few examples of God telling us, this is who I am. Jesus saying, this is who I am. In Luke 1.35, it says, and the angel answered and said to her, this is the angel coming to Mary, telling her she's going to have a baby boy who will be the Messiah. It says, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of Joseph. (laughs) No, the Son of God. Luke chapter 2 verse 49 says, and he said to them, why did you seek me? This is Jesus talking. So what had happened is is Mary and Joseph went for a Passover pilgrimage and there's a whole group of people that went down to Jerusalem as one of the pilgrimage feasts where they would go to Jerusalem to celebrate. So Jesus was 12 years old at the time. And so they, along with a lot of other people there from the area and the region, went down to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so they celebrated and they were on their way back. And and that first night on their way back, they realized that they had left their 12-year-old son in Jerusalem. And you say, oh boy, how how could anybody do something like that? Well, I want to tell you, this is a few years ago. So it's nobody in this room. But uh, I remember after service one day, this little, and I think he was probably about seven or eight at the time, little boy is is there, and his parents, I thought, had gone, and he was still here. And so we uh, called his parents, and this was a while ago, uh, so they didn't necessarily have a cell phone, and called his parents. And what had happened is they had brought two vehicles to church. Mom thought he was with dad and dad thought he was with mom and and I not and they weren't bad parents. I'm sure after two or three weeks they would have realized that he wasn't home. That was a joke. But of course, one of them raced back in and apologized profusely. So that's sort of what was happening to Joseph and Mary here. And Jesus said to them, to Mary and Joseph, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? <laughs> he was talking to Mary and Joseph. His father, somebody else. God the Father. In Luke chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, we see, And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and the voice came from heaven which said, So God the Father, as Jesus was being baptized, God the Father said, You are my beloved Son, in in you I am well pleased. And then in verse 23, we begin what's called the genealogy of Jesus. And in verse 23 it says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, check out these next words, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Jesus Christ was the son of God. And at the center of the debate among the Jews concerning Jesus was his identity. Could they say he was just a good man, a a good rabbi, a good teacher? Would they say he was a lunatic? 
or was he God with us? And we have to answer that same question in our lives. Who is Jesus? And if we say he is Lord, then the next natural question is, is he Lord of my life? And everyone in that synagogue that day and everyone in this world who has ever lived has to ask or answer that question, who is Jesus? So we see that. We also see that we must be willing to do right even when it means going against the flow. Our series, Jesus Going Against the Flow, challenging us to go against the flow also. Jesus didn't say what the people wanted to hear. He's like, oh yeah, they're the Smiths there in the back. I, they were my next door neighbors as I was growing up. Hey guys, isn't life good? It's like, no. What are you doing in your relationship with God? He was willing to stand up and do right even when it meant going against the flow. The people also needed to recognize, and we must recognize, the scope of God's grace. His grace is amazing. God's grace is greater than our sin and the sins of others, which leads us to the last. We must reflect God's love and passion for people. You see, we're to reflect that love and grace. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, it affects the way that I relate to that person who I meet in my life. Even that person who I would consider my enemy. And Jesus made some very radical statements about how we treat others, including those who we consider our enemies. You see, when I recognize God's grace in my life, I must reflect that love and grace in the lives of others. That helps me understand their value. It helps me to forgive them when they have hurt me. And it should cause me to passionately pursue, pursue them for God's kingdom. And that's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as Almighty God, you love us. Thank you for the life and teaching of Jesus Christ, but most importantly, his death and resurrection and the hope that we can have in him. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness and your grace in my life and the lives of everyone else. Lord, may I live a life that reflects that love and that grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.